CIM Podcasts. The contents and views expressed by individuals in this podcast are not necessarily those of the companies for which they work. Hello everybody and welcome. I'm with today Morag Cudderford-Jones who is our fantastic editor of Catalyst magazine here at CIM. Welcome Morag, welcome. Thanks very much for having me Ben. Have you recovered from Scotland's defeat in the Rugby World Cup? I don't think anyone recovers from Scotland's defeats, there just seem to be so many of them. I think they were defeated by the better team in this case. Oh, they were indubitably outplayed by Japan. I think it was one of the revelatory moments of this World Cup. And I think if we're, if we're going to be talking about marketing and branding, I think Japan has done a jolly good job of uh, revitalising its rugby brand in the face of the world. Not just its brand, but its player. There's something behind it, isn't there? It is. I think the fantastic thing, the comment that I heard, which I think is possibly a mantra for most of us, somebody said that Japan's play was so superb because unlike for many rugby teams, they chose their team based on skill, not size. Do you think there are lessons for marketers in that? I think indubitably you've got to delve deep into what it is you want to get out of your company. You've got to recognise where the skills lie. And you can't just look at things on the surface. There's an awful lot more of story to be told and an awful lot of uncharted, unplumbed opportunity, I think, out there. Playing to your strengths is an interesting one, isn't it? There is a fantastic article in Catalyst, the one that's just come out, which we're here to review today, about the um, way of revitalising the high street, which is always mm. close to your heart. Your view is that a lot of high street readers have got it completely wrong and are not playing to their strengths, they're playing to their weaknesses. I think you're right, Ben, and I think this is born almost of panic. So people do tend to look to the surface and look at the first idea they can think of when time is tight and the threat is big. And time is tight and the threat is big because clearly of online shopping. Um, shoppers are flocking in their droves to online suppliers. Retailers on the high street are going, well, what of these online suppliers that we've got that we haven't? Efficiency, speed, price. You can name any number of reasons why people might flock to online. But I think high street retailers are forgetting why people shopped offline in the first place. It wasn't just about price or convenience. Certainly couldn't have been convenience, the number of buses I used to have to get to the high street in Edinburgh. But it was the experience of it all. You know, I remember my parents asking after I'd gone out shopping with friends, and we could have been out for hours. And we'd come back with one small paper bag between us. And my father would go, you've been out all this time, and come back with that tiny thing. And I think that, that doesn't get the understanding of it was the experience of shopping. It was the touching, the feeling, the trying on the laughing at each other, the, the shared experience. And the merchandising, you know, you'd go in, nothing I buy ever looks as cool and funky as it does on Ikea's shelves right. when it's all ranged by colour and beautifully attractive. And that's where the merchandiser's skill lies yep. in making that attractive. And I think in their panic to find a way of competing directly against the online retailers... Offline retailers have forgotten what made them great in the first place. So how can they lean into that then, instead of lean against it? So I think, first of all, offer something that on online can't do. That tactile experience, the ability to touch, feel and play with. Um, our author for our Nordic know-how piece in the, in the magazine, from George Jensen, it's a silversmithing brand. And he was talking about how important it was that people could view the creation 
of these pieces of jewellery, these pieces of art. They could pick them up and touch them. They could experience how they were made. What are the high street retailers that, that are succeeding despite um, the march of the online retailers? I think, interestingly, the ones that are engaging with showrooming... Is it just a bad thing, showrooming? Is it, is it supposed to be anti-retailers? So it's the, the retailers showrooming, not the consumers showrooming. So... So this would be, so, so yes, you're right. So my acquisitiveness would be if I've taken the effort to go to a shop, I want to buy it and walk out with the thing that um, they have. But you can't necessarily do that with larger items. Now, we're used to going into um, old-style furniture showrooms and, and booking things. But now people like Ikea have got in on the act and they've created whole kitchen areas. Mila is the same. Created whole kitchen areas that, yes, you can't walk away with a dishwasher. But in Mila, you can go and cook. Right. In Ikea's showroom on Tottenham Court Road, you can move stuff around and sit down with a planner and get a 3D visualisation of how your kitchen would look, as opposed to standing in Ikea out by Wembley, for example, um, looking completely bemused at 17 different types of cupboard front yes. and having no capacity for being able to visualise what that might look like in your house. I think the whole placing products in your life, whether it's a pair of earrings or an entire kitchen island, is a vital tool that offline retailers can really capitalise on. The big thrust in the magazine this time is marketing the unmarketable. You're using a little bit of poetic licence because your view, and the presumably Catalyst's view, is that there really isn't, it really shouldn't be unmarketable at all, these things. What sort of things are we talking about? Well, I, I, th I think when it comes to maybe marketing nuclear weapons, I may actually draw a line <laughs> under that. Um, but yes, there are, there are a number of sectors or audiences that either leading marketers or the marketing community in general feels is just a bit too touchy to go there. And I can't actually see any logical reason why not. These activities are neither illegal, nor dangerous, nor inappropriate, nor do they make no small amount of money. They, they can be very lucrative. Um, there are audiences out there that want them and people that want to sell them. Now, from what I vaguely remember in economics, that was pretty much the foundation of a capitalist society. Yes. You make stuff, they want it, you sell it. Yes. Um, but there is definitely a certain queasiness I love the word queasiness. I think, it's, I think it's really appropriate. I think the look on people's face when you talk about these sectors is queasy. What sort of sectors were you focusing on? So we were focusing on feminine hygiene. Yeah. We were focusing on sexual health. And by sexual health, I don't just mean medicine. I mean actual sex. Mm. And we were talking about gambling. Yeah. And we were talking about marijuana. You found a difference in the response that public authorities had to advertising uh, medicine which mm -hmm. for, for, for men, male sexual health, Viagra and the like, um, to the way that they were responding to the idea of advertising um, toys for female exactly. sexual health, if you like. And what happened there? You had an interesting example. There, there were two aspects, actually. The one that spurred the article and one that's actually in the article itself. What spurred the original thought of the article was CES, which is a major consumer electronics show in America. And a female-led developer um, went across with a sex toy, right. which 
I believe, still falls under consumer electronics. Um, and a number of other uh, electronics and toys and tools had been allowed. This won an award for innovation and then was promptly banned from showing at the show. So it, it won and it, was then banned? It won and then was banned. Which is a neat trick, presumably. It is. They, they, they were lauded for their innovation and then told they couldn't actually show it. Um, and bearing in mind, they were just showing a piece of brand new technology in the same way as you might go to a kitchen and bathroom show and they were showing a brand new unused toilet. Yes. So there was nothing uh, sordid or mucky about it. Um, so that was what inspired the thought about the articles. Really, are we in this day and age really that queasy about all aspects of people's lives? You found that they, we were queasy, or, or certain public authorities. Was the New York certain. subway, the New York tube, if you like? Was... Indeed. The MTA in New York uh, was happy to show adverts about male sexual health, yep. was happy to take adverts uh, about Viagra yep. and other types of male sexual dysfunction medication. But again, they would not show tasteful, well-worded, well-designed adverts that interestingly met all the advertising, relative advertising authorities' criteria um, for that sector, but they still wouldn't show it on the trains. We can't show you a photograph because we're on the radio or on a podcast, but readers and catalysts will find that they are very tasteful. The, the, the answer, there's a similarity, isn't there, between the two adverts in terms of yeah. style? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a very minimalist ad. It's yeah. got some words. It's got words that I don't think I would have felt uncomfortable um, you know, with my child sitting next to me on the train when they were younger. They would have been able to read it for themselves and probably been none the wiser. Yeah. And yet someone with sexual experience would have gone, oh, that's what that's for. I mean, I can, only, I can only describe what these things look like is if you've ever got any experience of Alessi egg cups. Oh, yeah. That sort of thing. That really is what they look like. Yeah. They clearly have a very different purpose, but there's nothing overt about these things. But they look like designer ornaments. Yeah. And um, in a way they are, then. And in a way they, <laughs> in a way they are. In a way they are. Um, but if you're a marketing person, these companies employ marketing people like any other company... You must think, what do I need to do in order to get my advertising out there? Well, I think one of our other commenters has found a brilliant thing that she needed to do, and I think an awful lot of people may well fo follow suit. It is the absolute original example of guerrilla marketing. Uh, Cindy Gallup, who may well be well known to some of you, is uh, an innovator, a former ad chief herself, and now runs a much smaller startup called Make Love Not Porn, which is a legitimate... Uh, channel online and she wanted to advertise it and of course they wouldn't let her in any mainstream areas and so in the middle of New York Pride they broadcast an advert, a tasteful non-salacious, non-exposing advert but an advert nonetheless on top of one of the biggest buildings in Times Square Right. And I thought fair enough so we can expect, if, 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 the, if the London Transport Authority or the New York Metropolitan Transit Authority continues to uh, resist the advertising of female sexual health products, we can expect to see them displayed on the Empire State Building, on Tower Bridge. <laughs> Look, they broadcast Gail Porter's naked bottom on the House of, House of Commons about 20 years ago. Yeah. I think we've crossed that particular Rubicon. Do you know, I think... I wish 
advertising associations and media owners, let's say, because that's essentially what MTA is. It's not just a transport authority, it's a media owner, um, become pragmatic about this. It's like water. Everything finds a way. Um, these products will be marketed, and if the marketers behind them are responsible, they will be marketed to their audiences, only to their audiences, and in a way that is sensitive to anyone else who might come across the advertising. That, indeed, is what all the other adverts that we feature in the magazine completely did. As we said, they, they met the criteria. Um, but I think we need, to, we need to stop being a bit playground about it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it, people do laugh, don't they, and, mm. and smirk and, and, and chuckle and so on and so forth. But I think the interesting thing for me is that there's, a, there's more than a whiff of sexism about this, at mm. least sexist double standards, if you like. Um, something that improves male sexual health and partner of uh, males, be they male or female, sexual health with it, is seemingly okay to advertise. Something that in, uh, improves female sexual health is apparently not mm. okay to advertise. I... I don't know why it is. Perhaps one is a pill, the other is a device. Whether it is triggering images in people's heads, I, I don't know what the reason is for it. But I definitely think, by all means, have a smile, have a smirk. Yeah. Some of this stuff is actually downright funny. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you don't have to treat it the same way as, as anything else that is marketed. It has an audience, you have a product, they're happy to part with money, you're making them happy in whatever form. Via con Dios, I say. There seems to be a lot of it about at the moment. The Australian lingerie manufacturer Honey Birdette has run into trouble in Australia for advertising its product, which is clothing. Mm. Um, the advertising scene is too launchy. Um, gambling is, as you say, legal. But people who are advertising gambling are um, restricted on where and when they can they can advertise. There's got to be some sort of regulation and boundaries. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and certainly, you know, when it comes to gambling, um, I'm fully on board with uh, regulation. It has to be in the right place. I'm very pleased that the decision to take out in-game gambling has has passed. We talk about this as if this is uh, an exceptional case. What if I replaced gambling with alcohol? Mm. Have another drink. We're not allowed to say that. No. Alcohol makes you attractive to the opposite sex. We're not allowed to say. We're not even allowed to imply that as marketers. So if you look at things that can be addictive in their extreme, food can be addictive in its extreme. We're already talking about a sugar tax. We're not talking about banning producing Mars bars. Um, so with all of these things, anything can be dangerous. Driving is dangerous when it's fast. Audis can go plus 200 miles an hour on a normal road, I believe. Other brands are available. Other brands are available. Um, but all of these things, there are a huge number of things that done to excess, misused, miscommunicated, can cause mass problems. Just because we were all Victorians 100 years ago, I don't know why some of these things still have to be. So that's fascinating, compelling content, particularly if you're a marketer working in a space which is, uh, you know, in the sexual health field or uh, in the gambling field or, or, or in the area of entertainment and, 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 and alcohol and so on and so forth. What else is in this amazing magazine, this, this quarter, Morag? Well, 
one thing that I really love when doing this magazine is speaking to really interesting people and getting some really interesting perspectives, things that challenge my perception of the world. I am a middle-class, middle-aged mother from Middle England. My sphere of experience, I'd like to think I'd lived a little, but I can't... For, for clarity, yeah. Morag is actually from Scotland, but lives, <laughs> yes. lives in Middle England. I live in Middle England, and yeah. when I lived in Scotland, it was the middle of Scotland. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I cannot have, as, as informed as I can be, I cannot have every perspective. So what we try to do with every issue, not just this one, is to go to... Go to people who have these perspectives to find out, undiluted from them, what their vision is. And one beautiful coincidence, because we happen to be plumb in the middle of Black History Month, which we very much weren't when I was putting the magazine together, um, I met a chap called Derek Walker on Twitter. There are good things that come out of Twitter. Um, and he is a black agency head from South Carolina in America. And he had been tweeting about the lack of understanding by both brands and agencies of black culture. And I thought, hang on a minute, we're all woke, we all know about equality, we surely all understand that we're all equal under one sun. And I thought Derek's perspective was a massive wake-up call, that we have a tendency in our desire to be fostering equality that we can erase the differences that make us us. And what he's written about in Catalyst is the vital importance of having diversity, whether that's in your brand or in your agencies, and more than one, by the way, not just one black person, a few, more than one a Asian person, a few, more than one woman, a few, um, and talked about the importance of getting their viewpoint and how badly wrong it can go if you don't have that viewpoint. There's some horrible examples in the magazine of where it did go badly wrong, aren't there? There are horrible examples. Um, Gucci recently put out a jumper that was the epitome of blackface. It was a turtleneck jumper that would roll all the way up the face with a space for knitted-in bright red lips to make the wearer look like they were blackface and to add to insult to injury, the model they had was a Scandinavian blonde. Kendall. Jenna's appearance in a Pepsi advert as a peacekeeper was widely rounded on as being tone deaf. For people who missed this controversy, can you explain a little bit about what happened with this advertisement? Miss Jenna is one of the Kardashian clan made famous by reality TV. Uh, that in itself has its audience. I'm not going to do them down here, but they are not exactly high priests of philosophy. Um... Pepsi chose to emulate a historic civil rights clash between civil rights protesters in, I believe, the 70s and riot-clad police, except by updating it, instead of having a hippie-type protester presenting the police with a flower, they had Miss Jenner presenting the police with a can of Pepsi, thus eradicating several decades of um, peaceful protest and civil rights movement and reducing it all to a can of fizzy pop and somebody who spends a lot of time using bronzer. Um, <laughs> so, so this was one of the things that Derek picked up on and he said, in my interview with him, uh, he said, you know, if there had been a black person watching that, that would never have gone anywhere.
Let's hear from Derek. You've had him on the phone from the United States. We have people putting out campaigns and then wondering why this campaign failed or why people are roasting them on social media. We act like there's nobody of color in this conversation, but they're there. And the only reason we're getting it wrong is because maybe these people can't speak. They're there as window dressing. Um, they show up and they're not allowed to tell their stories or, or, or to be different. They're there just the cosign on whatever the bosses decide on. They give the, they give the, the, the racial stamp of approval. Well, we had a black person in here. We had a Hispanic person in here. We had a woman in here. And that makes it right. No. Were they at the table? And could they speak? This leads to an interesting debate in the sector as to what extent should we homogenize mm -hmm. and play down differences versus to what extent should we celebrate and enhance those differences. You know, a few weeks ago we were speaking about the ASA guidelines on sexism and by contrasting the two sexes, um, you can lead yourself to become caught by the new guidelines. Um, isn't the risk we end up doing this if we, if we try to enhance and celebrate differences in the way that you're suggesting? It's an interesting point that you want to uh, represent everyone when you're broadcasting to a wider population. You want to get in the multifaceted environment we live in. Now, to do that, you still need to represent everyone within it the way they want to be represented. So in another article in the magazine, we have the CEO of the Business Disability Forum uh, attending our roundtable. And she said that one of her deepest desires is simply to see disabled people represented as members of society, not look here, we cater to disabled people, or look how special a disabled person is, just here are a group of people, and one of them happens to be disabled, in a normal situation, doing normal things for a normal brand, all of the normals in inverted commas. And so there are two lines to tread. One, who is your audience, and what's the message you're sending to them? If that audience is predominantly of one culture, it might not be the best idea to use another culture to try and build that messaging. However, if you are trying to broadly represent and send out a broad message, then broadly represent what that broad population looks like. Find different ways of engaging with different ideas. Otherwise, you will trot out the same thing again and again. And where does that get anyone? Probably not very far, very fast. <laughs> Morag, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Ben. Join us next time when we'll discover how brands are fighting their way back into consumers' hearts and minds. CIM Podcast.